It is not enough to tell you that you're sleeping. It is not enough to tell you that there is an awakened state. You actually have to enter into the program to help you wake up by stages. Welcome to the Wisdom of Compassion, a podcast presented by White Conch Dharma Center. For today's episode, we will be featuring a teaching by Domo Geshe Rinpoche, the spiritual director of White Conch, titled The Four Noble Truths. The first set of teachings Buddha Shakyamuni gave upon attaining awakening was called the Four Noble Truths. These are the truth of suffering, the truth of the causes of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path. I'm sure you'll enjoy the anecdotes and inspiring discussion in Domo Geshe Rinpoche's commentary as she brings this timeless teaching to life. We have uh, an interesting discussion tonight uh, about uh, the uh, Four Noble Truths and uh, uh, laying the foundation of happiness. You know, I've had uh, uh, many people uh, approach me and uh, quite complaining, especially in the West, pretty much in the West, (laughs) that uh, you Buddhists always want to talk about suffering and uh, that everything is suffering and pain and uh, this uh, doesn't seem quite fair, that uh, I don't want to hear about it. I only want to hear about a happy things. And, uh, so, uh, and so we talk about uh, how to be happy, but uh, we talk about how to be happy uh, by what we're going to do about our suffering. So we got you there again. <laughs> and actually, uh, this... Uh, Four Noble Truths is a, it's a, it's a kind of a, I want to say it's a kind of a miracle teaching. It was the uh, first teaching of the Buddha. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, are not aware, a Buddha is actually a state. Uh, When someone is described as a Buddha, uh, it means awakened one. And so there are you may not know that there are many, many, many Buddhas. And uh, in that way, when we talk about the Buddha, the Buddha, we are usually referring to the one that we call Lord Buddha Shakyamuni. So when we say Buddha Shakyamuni, or the Buddha here, this is who we're talking about. And uh, uh, he awakened, he awakened, definitively awakened, Uh, now more than 2,500 years ago. This awakening that he accomplished was to a state which was a definitive level of awakening which has a, uh, you know, when you talk about the mathematics or scientific, that you think that uh, spirituality is some kind of a, uh, uh, what they call a fuzzy science. Huh? And uh, that, uh, you know, you go, you go to work tomorrow morning and you say, oh, I'm a Buddha. Yesterday I wasn't, but now I'm a Buddha. What are they going to know? <laughs> they wouldn't know the difference if you, uh, if you were a Buddha or not a Buddha or you enlightened or not enlightened because they don't hold the standards of the criteria. And so they would say, that's nice, pass the sugar. <laughs> However, 
However, there are standards and excellences which are associated with the awakening mind and uh, uh, actually the only one, only ones that can, uh, that can uh, define this awakening mind are those who have already achieved that state, who already hold the standards and the, uh, what you call, there's some kind of a terminology that they use in quality control. What would that be? <coughs> hmm? What are some of the terms? I not know. Certified. Huh? Certified. Certified. There you go. <laughs> Certified awakened. <laughs> and uh, it seemed kind of funny because it's it because spirituality seems like something that should be uh, an absence of a something, an absence of suffering. And yet, when they move from the absence of suffering through an awakening process, that that one moves into another kind of system where they are judged according to the level of their attainments. Huh. And so, and so uh, the common view that the Buddhism uh, brings you into a state of a nothingness. Huh? Who believed that or who's heard that? Huh? Most people have heard that there is a kind of dream which is actually like a nothing that this world is that Buddhism describes and as you wake up, as you become awakened to that, then uh, what exactly is this thing that you have awakened to, or do you just wake up to a big nothing? <laughs> and why would anyone want to do that? Are you hurting that bad? No, you're not yet hurting that bad that you're willing to, you're willing to give up what you have for nothing at all. And so there must be something <laughs> <laughs> that the Buddha was talking about, excuse me, that the Buddha was talking about that was part of another way of being and this description, this, this awakening into this state uh, gave him a great deal of concern and uh, after this, his awakening, and if you saw the movie, you know what I'm talking about, like that. What's it called? Little Buddha or different movies like that. Wonderful. I love them. And uh, this uh, awakening, and uh, he remained, of course, a necessity, uh, much stabilization of this state. And uh, when he could speak again, <laughs> which takes a while, that he said, uh, basically, uh, no one will understand what this is because it's such a unique, uh, a unique view, so very different from the views which he had already practiced through the Hindu practices, which he'd done. Of course, you know, like 
Jesus was, was a Jew, right? So Buddha was a Hindu, okay? So like that, there was no Buddhism for Buddha to join because he was the Buddha. And uh, in that way, he, he practiced many different forms of Hinduism, perfecting those states acknowledged by his Hindu teacher and guru as having accomplished. And when it was time for him to say, this is, this is the truth, this is the awakening into this moksha, what they call moksha, liberation, or the absence of uh, uh, suffering in the nihilistic view that he practiced. And he wore that. And he accepted that as being true. And then he could not accept it any longer. He said, there is more. This is not, this is not the truth. And since there was no one who could teach him, that he set himself aside uh, in, uh, uh, in a method that he felt was not these two extreme views which he had been exposed to, as well as setting himself aside from uh, his, all of his companions, his what they call his sangha, these uh, forest ascetics that he lived with. And all of these, uh, this group, they looked up to him. Oh, you can imagine... Uh, what a good meditator he was. But they saw him as being their leader among all these ascetics. And uh, when, he, uh, when he abandoned the asceticisms, that they were very angry with him because he had uh, uh, gone back on his word for the ascetic life. And when he attained enlightenment, even, even after he had attained enlightenment, these uh, ascetics were still angry with him. Were still angry with him. And he remained alone and uh, contemplating. And uh, the... Um, the uh, uh, inner beings who were higher level beings uh, in the highest, uh, highest form realms, the gods, Indra and Brahma, uh, came before him and said, please teach, please teach us, and please teach the world of men and women. <laughs> And uh, he said, no, he said, no. He said, they, they, they won't be able to understand. This is so far beyond the state to which I have awakened is so far beyond the teachings which are available. How in the world, I mean, I'm saying it like someone from Wisconsin, how <laughs> in the world can we ever get them from that position to the awakened state? Who knows, maybe the Buddha was from Wisconsin. We just uh, hadn't been invented yet here. He was one with everywhere. There you go. <laughs> he was very pre-Wisconsin like that. And so 
he had, uh, he thought about that for a while, and then he felt encouraged uh, to do something, to do something. And so uh, he walked. He decided he was going to teach, and he walked quite a distance to a place called Sarnath, which is in Bihar state, I believe. Bihar? Was it in Bihar state? No, I know I'm not. Varanasi, but I, th I think it may be, anyway, I'm going to say Sarnath. I can't remember my Indian states that well anymore. And uh, he uh, arrived and uh, experienced much derision uh, from his ascetic uh, followers. And he prepared himself, prepared a seat uh, near a place called Deer Park, in a place called Deer Park, which I took my students to. It's going now back a few years. We visited these holy places of the Buddha, and we saw the place where the teachings were first given. So what I do? I go sit down on the ground and I teach my students <laughs> Four Noble Truths right there in that same place uh, for the auspiciousness of it. It was quite an honor for me. And uh, right outside, the, right next to the stupa. And uh, he gathered these, uh, as these uh, ascetics knew that some, at that point that something had happened. And they gathered around him to hear what he had to teach. And so I'm going to read you a little bit about uh, the uh, historical, historical, and then we're going to have a discussion about Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are one of the most fundamental uh, Buddhist teachings. This I, I read here so I don't miss any points because this is all, uh, all uh, uh, important. In broad terms, these truths relate to suffering or suffering's nature, origin, cessation, and the path leading to cessation. These are among the truths Gautama Buddha, he's called Gautama Buddha, uh, yes, is said to have realized during his experience of enlightenment. The Four Noble Truths appeared appear many times throughout the most ancient Buddhist texts, which is called the Pali, P-A-L-I, Pali Canon. Hmm? The early teachings and the traditional understandings in the Theravada is that the Four Noble Truths are an advanced teaching for those who are ready for them. Now, the Theravadans are the uh, the old school, the old school of Buddhism, and uh, eventually, uh, according to minor philosophical differences, divided up into 18 different schools <laughs> of Theravada. I suppose the one where you take your hat off, one you leave your hat on. Usually it had to do with some very minor points of understanding. And uh, uh, the, in the Theravadan uh, tradition, that these Four Noble Truths are among the elite 
of the teachings and that there are many behavioral and um, behavioral adjustments in your own mind and your own body and your own speech which have to be accomplished before you are able to fully understand of the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> However, in the Mahayana, which is my tradition and what I teach, the Mahayana we call the Great Vehicle and we call the Theravadan, we call the Theravada, uh, the Hinayana, the Small Vehicle. We don't do this out of a sense of trying to make them appear small. However, the major philosophical break between these two schools of Buddhism is the Theravadans say uh, that the only thing that you can hope for in the true Theravadan is to become free yourself and enter in, into cessation, which is the absolute stilling of all suffering. Understanding the nature of suffering, you then enter into a withdrawal process, a withdrawal process, uh, which will eventually culminate in your, uh, in the cessation and uh, no more uh, suffering. However, in the Mahayana, we say that at a certain point, at a certain point in one's development, that one enters into another kind of dynamic with your world that you come to the sudden realization that if I have been suffering this hard that I am willing to go into cessation now that I have a little better understanding of the uh, dynamics and how to uh, overcome suffering and I was in that bad of a position that I was willing to be nothing in order to be free then what about all others who have not even had the opportunity to hear that liberation is available this liberation I have this liberation now unfolds in the Mahayana where, that ma where the Mahayanist now instead of working for their own liberation makes advances uh, toward a higher enlightened state not for their own sake but for the sake of all living beings. And so they enter into various kinds of skillful activities and trainings in order to become the one who is so capable that they are literally capable of sa eventually saving all living beings. And so the Mahayana is the path of high altruism in Buddhism. And Theravadan, the Theravadan, is the path of withdrawal and cessation. However, having said that, there are no even one school of Theravadan 
those all 18 schools that is, uh, exist today in those forms. All of the schools, every school of Theravadan, and there aren't that many of them left, there may, really I don't know, maybe three uh, philosophical schools of Theravadan, maybe not even that much, and they are all mixed with the Mahayana. They are all mixed with the Mahayana to a certain degree, uh, to a certain degree or another. Are you with me? Okay. And so, in the Theravadan, in the Theravadan, in the original Pali and the original Theravadan schools, that these, uh, that these are the advanced teachings for those who are prepared. However, in Mahayana, Buddhism regards them as a preliminary teaching for people who are not ready for its own teachings. And uh, some, see, some may see truths, some may see truths, the Four Noble Truths, as a mistranslation. One author says realities as a possibly better choice. And, uh, uh, however, the original Tibetan translators, Lotsawas, who studied Sanskrit grammar thoroughly, did translate the term from Sanskrit into Tibetan, which has the full meaning of truth. So we accept, we accept, now that we've gone from language to language like that, that it continues to be the Four Noble Truths. Why the Buddha is said to have taught this way is illuminated by the social context of the time in which he lived. The Buddha was a wandering ascetic whose aim was to discover the truth and attain happiness. He is said to have achieved this aim while under a Bodhi tree near the river Narajana the Four Noble Truths are a formulation of his understanding of the nature of suffering, the fundamental cause of all suffering, the escape from suffering, and what efforts a person can go through so that they themselves can attain happiness. Hmm? These truths are not expressed as a hypothesis, if you're going to look at it, from a a strict, mathematically correct, logical uh, point of view, or, and they are not a tentative idea, meaning that they are not a transitional idea toward the development of another idea, such as where string theory is, for example, in, your, in our present world. I was going to say yours, but I live here also, our present world. Rather, the Buddha says, rather that, rather the Buddha says, these four noble truths, monks, are actual, unerring, not otherwise. Therefore, they are called noble truths. The Buddha said that he taught them because they, because it is beneficial, because it belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life because it leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion, to cessation of suffering, 
to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, and to nirvana. The Buddha said, this is why I have declared it. This teaching was the basis of the Buddha's first discourse after his enlightenment. In early Buddhism, this is the most advanced training in the Buddha's gradual training. The Mahayana understanding of the Four Noble Truths. There are certain major Mahayana sutras, including the Mahaparinirvana Sutra and the Agulamalaya Puf. The Agulamalaya Sutra presented various, various uh, versions of the Four Noble Truths. And uh, these uh, alternative views are specific to certain Mahayana schools, most notably the Tathagatagarbha and the Jonangpa traditions. And so the uh, tinkering, as we say, uh, with the Four Noble Truths, actually not to sit very well with, uh, uh, with the in Tibetan, in Tibetan Buddhism, that we had a very strict a regulated uh, 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 readings of these uh, most basic scriptures and to change the Four Noble Truths in order to make them fit into another form of spirituality was the uh, Tibetan uh, medieval version of New Age religions. Huh? And uh, Actually, there was uh, quite a bit of uh, trouble uh, with uh, uh, New Age ideas uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. I think uh, even Christianity struggled with uh, new interpretations of the Bible. Uh, I'm I just guessing like that, understanding human nature, <laughs> that, uh, that there are, uh, uh, that there are, uh, like cults that grow up and break away uh, from Christianity. I suppose that's why Christianity has so many different... <laughs> I think Christianity broke into more than 18 pieces like that, like a Humpty Dumpty. Huh? <laughs> and uh, someday maybe put, put a Humpty Dumpty back together again and have one Christianity. Huh? Anybody working on that? I think that would be wonderful. They are. They are. Good. Are you at the forefront of that? Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And uh, so, maintaining a kind of clarity uh, regarding the Four Noble Truths means that discussions such as we're doing here tonight, it's important that uh, you understand uh, not from some New Age uh, type of interpretation of the Four Noble Truths, but in fact, what exactly was it, since these are the basic teachings of the Buddha, well, exactly what did he mean by this of Four Noble Truths? Now, we will not begin, we will not uh, be able to cover uh, the entire meaning of the Buddha regarding the Four Noble Truths because he spent 40 years doing it. And we have 
only less than an hour remaining. So we will have to hurry up and uh, figure out what it was that he meant. So, the idea that the Buddha and his Dharma are eternal and that one's inner Buddha nature is not empty would be denied in other Buddhist traditions such as the Madhyamaka and Zen. I have to say that again. The ideas that the Buddha and his Dharma are eternal and that one's inner Buddha nature is not empty would be denied in other Buddhist traditions such as the Madhyamaka and Zen. And so you have within the, uh, within the Mahayana that you have acceptable acceptable variations of the Four Noble Truths in the definitive view of what is the nature of reality which come through in certain, uh, certain Buddhist uh, uh, schools of thought. Uh, and I only give you the names because uh, truly we not have enough time here and I want us to be able to discuss so I just present to you that there are acceptable versions of the, uh, of the Four Noble Truths, the, the definitive nature of the Four Noble Truths, which are discussed in certain Buddhist philosophical schools which have become acceptable. So you have unacceptable, and then you have acceptable. Uh-huh. In the Sutra of the Four Noble Truths, I, I must say, I must say at this point, though, that uh, Zen, that Zen uh, view, which is called Chan at that time, it only became Zen when it when it uh, f- went from China uh, to Japan. That the Chan school uh, of Buddhism, uh, that there was a tremendous debate, very formal, and it went on for some time debating the. In Tibet, this was in Tibet, which form, because Tibet between China and India, were we going to uh, approve and practice the view that was prevalent in Indian Buddhism, or were we going to practice the view that was prevalent in China at that time, which was called Chan. And so these two views, the Indian Buddhism and uh, Chinese Buddhism, debated for some time and very famous debates. And eventually, Chan was said, go, go. We're not interested in your filthy philosophy. (laughs) I don't mean that so bad. But uh, it it would have been that, uh, like that. So throwing off Chan and uh, accepting the Indian Buddhism, then was when all of the, the many translators uh, went to India and brought back either Indian masters, Buddhist masters, because it was uh, still very, very uh, strong in India, or brought back the, uh, the uh, scriptures and uh, uh, became uh, the form that uh, Tibetan Buddhism is today. So no, no Zen, no Chan, like that. And uh, uh, in that way, however, we all still Buddhism. We all still Buddhism. <laughs> so we okay, we still okay with each other like that. And uh, in the Sutra, 
in the Sutra of the Four Noble Truths, uh, the Buddha, this is Buddha Shakyamuni, says, you should know suffering. Two, you should abandon origins. Three, you should attain cessations. And four, you should practice the path. Ah, yes. And so uh, become very succinct and uh, in that way, uh, the fact that it, that it went into a kind of seed aphorism form allowed it to remain in this seed aphorism form uh, for these 2,500 years and has become a subject for the, uh, like an outline or like a, like a matrix uh, for the teachings and the understandings of the full flowering of Buddhism uh, to be explained. Much of Buddhism can be explained uh, through these uh, four statements. And uh, so, uh, on your behalf, I thought, uh, uh, why, were they, why were they four in number? Just nothing, no, no special uh, reason that I would say that. Uh, other than I like to question everything. So I thought, uh, why four? And there was no cosmic, you know, now that uh, many, some people are studying like a sacred geometry or, or numerology or s some kind of ology or ism having to do with numbers so that, that, uh, that having uh, four points would be, uh, would be more auspicious or more holy than having three or twelve like that. And uh, uh, I believe, I personally believe, that, uh, that, uh, there was, that this was not taught as four. I think that originally that there was, and uh, this is my own opinion, I can have my own opinion, huh? that there were probably more than four, mm -hmm. eh? but they became condensed into four categories. And so uh, the teachings, in order for the people at that time uh, to be able to remember the teachings, that, uh, that it was important that they have a way, or monomonomic, uh, to be able to uh, hold the understanding. And so they, uh, the teachings fell into one of these uh, categories so that those who were disseminating Buddhism in the early times would be able to have a method uh, in which to gather the various kinds of teachings. Huh? And so, and so the, uh, uh, we talk about the first turning, first turning of the Wheel of Dharma, uh, which happened at Deer Park, which is now Sarnath. And uh, <coughs> uh, both the uh, Pali, which was the original ancient language, as well as the Chinese canon, C-A-N-O-N, uh, or scriptural resources, I might say, text, uh, talk about the nature of suffering, uh, the nature of suffering. And uh, basically, uh, basically, if you want to have the smallest monomic and memory device, that we would say that suffering exists. Suffering exists. Huh? 
This is the noble truth. Now I quoting now I quoting from scripture. This is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Separate not to get what what not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suff are suffering. And the five aggregates are uh, form, feeling, karma, consciousness itself. These are everything that you are. Your body, uh, your, your sense bases, everything that you touch, everything you come into contact with, with the suffering mind, with the suffering consciousness, produces suffering. And uh, uh, this is the uh, text this is the, the text. And so we have, uh, we have a, way, uh, a way to talk about a suffering in ways that are, uh, that will arouse you uh, from a kind of stupor that has been induced by suffering. In other words, for all ordinary people that they have become so accustomed to the baseline suffering that you don't, even in the best of times, in the happiest of times, we don't realize that we are actually suffering. That happiness is suffering, but not as bad as it was in manifest suffering. That you have become accustomed, inured, as they say, to calling the not-so-bad suffering happiness. This is a Buddha saying that you have decayed your marvelous ability and the ability to be awake that you have literally fallen asleep in the manure. And it's so pleasant because it's nice and soft. <laughs> and uh, the Buddha says, hey, <laughs> this is not right. You are actually lying in manure. And you say, but it's softer than 
over there in the road, which is hard and rocky, and who knows, carts coming along in Buddha's time, maybe it was you. Maybe it was you there at that time. And the Buddha's going, hey, hey. Maybe you just now uh, feeling the stirrings of his words. Maybe it took 2,500 years for it to percolate in you. And now, for some reason, you don't like the smell of the poop anymore. <laughs> that it was okay for the softness. But uh, you, don't, you don't feel comfortable anymore. As this natural, what I call a kind of natural built into your DNA, awakening process makes you really, really unhappy. Some people feel depressed. Some people just angry. Some people feel like they've been cheated into believing that the happiness, all of this happiness, happiness, and then you try to be more happy and more happy. Oh, stand in line and get a new iPod like that. <laughs> or this Wii, W-I-I. I never even saw one yet, but uh, people standing in line, maybe they fight to get a Wii to make them happy. And... Uh, Somehow, even though everyone, like a rushing river around you, seeking more and more and softer manure, that uh, you begin to think, am I crazy? What is it that these people are doing? They're just making more suffering. Now we have to go to work and make a lot of money so we can buy all of these things that we don't need so that we have no time to think about our suffering. This is our modern dilemma, huh? And uh, you want to be, uh, you, you decide uh, against the current, against the current of all society and what your family says, you know, just to make a lot of money and have a lot of children and just be happy and buy an RV and go to Texas. Because <laughs> I hear this is, the, this is the, the great American dream now. Your children are grown and now you're going to go to Texas and uh, hang out with other old people, huh? Probably not Texas. Probably not Texas. And you, you feel sick. You feel sick. And... You hear uh, the first noble truth, and you say, thank goodness, I knew that I, what I was feeling was, uh, was something that was real. I wasn't kidding myself. This really is suffering. And, uh, and uh, you begin to observe this existential, existential dilemma everywhere you turn. You say how much the body suffers. We keep taking, trying to take care of it, you know, and maybe get to Botox or a 
or uh, get our fingernails done or go have the hair cut in a new way or buy some new clothes and still the body suffers. But even the Buddha, even the Buddha saw his father didn't want him to become an ascetic. He was supposed to be a king. And his father tried to protect him so that he wouldn't see that anyone ever suffered. Otherwise, his son was going to run away. Huh? That sounds like a very modern story. Huh? <laughs> so you give your children everything so that they're happy to comply with these life's goals that you've sort of sat down with them and now you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, whatever. And uh, you're always afraid that your, your dear child is going to abandon you and uh, rush off and, uh, I don't know, join a Hare Krishna's or something like that. And uh, in that way, uh, even you as Buddhists, uh, you don't want your kids to uh, uh, abandon their, uh, uh, the program. It's so funny, really, like that. <laughs> you say, well, 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 we'll talk about this slowly, like that. We, we, want you to, we want you to have a successful and happy life. And so you're going to get married and have children, and then later you can become a Buddhist and really like that. Anyway, I'm just giving you a little bit hard time. Many of you have uh, teenagers, so I, I say like that. <coughs> and uh, however, this suffering, this suffering of the body, uh, the Buddha asked his father, uh, can, you, uh, can you guarantee, can you guarantee uh, that uh, 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 I will not uh, become sick or uh, have... Uh, uh, the body will not suffer. And he said, I cannot, uh, I cannot guarantee that. And uh, so the suffering of the body, it goes up and down. A suffering of the mind, almost instantaneous. That uh, one moment you're happy, you're feeling uh, quite okay, and the phone rings and someone tells you something and all of a sudden you're suffering. And again, you're happy, and again, your mind goes up and down like a roller coaster, around and around and up and down. And then you become an adept at worrying, and so you worry uh, even about things that have nothing to do with you. And uh, the suffering of the mind is more painful than the suffering of the body You suffer from not getting what you want. You have expectations. You have expectations uh, of getting something that you want. This job or the car or the boyfriend. And you suffer because you are not getting it. And on the other hand, you are suffering from getting what you did get. What you are suffering from getting what you wanted that uh, wonderful house that uh, you worked so hard and then the water come pouring in the ceilings and the floor and like that the river overflows 
or the car you bought that you just loved. You just, I mean, you worked, you worked so hard to keep that car and keep pay for the insurance, etc. And now what is it? It's just a pile of junk. You have to protect it. You know, some, some people will park half a, half a mile away because they're afraid someone's going to touch their car like that. And so you worry about your car sitting outside all by itself, so lonely. <laughs> put a double locks on your car, put double locks on your house. Now you have to, now you have to protect uh, all of this stuff that you got that you wanted against people who might take it away from you. That is a kind of suffering uh, from trying to maintain and protect what, you already, what you've already gotten. The suffering from being separated from loved ones at death. For everyone here, that uh, that uh, that there, there you have family and friends who are so dear and so important to you. Did you know that they are going to die? Is that a possibility? Yes, it is a very strong possibility. Either this only go this way. Either they will die or you will die. But I promise you, in that combination, one of you is going to die. And that is why they call it separation. That your idea, if you really thought about it, and I don't know if I want to encourage you to do this, on your wedding day, to think about becoming separated from the one that you love so much that you could not live without them, that you will become separated from them. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. And so this separation from loved ones at death is a big suffering that you carry while you are loving someone so much, the fear of losing them causes you a suffering that is inappropriate. This suffering from the happiness of your love of others needs to have a, a careful way uh, to be able to be alive without having this suffering. This is supposed to bring you happiness. But instead, the intense love that you feel is completely contaminated by fear, anxiety, and more. Only a little bit to be scratching here tonight. There is the suffering of rebirth, something which you cannot envision at this moment because you are already involved in the dynamic between birth and death of this life. But for those who are in the between lives state, that there is a tremendous amount of suffering which they have to endure in order to, uh, in order to enter into another kind of uh, karmic uh, existence, that they will suffer because the very hopes and dreams of going to heaven are dashed and they open their eyes 
and they say, Oh, dang, beggar again. <laughs> Only they're so small, they can't really, they can't really verbalize that. Many fine people, many fine people have an ability to remember, uh, to remember uh, their earliest time when they baby. And they always say, oh, shoot, what the heck am I doing here again? Maybe not a beggar, but uh, they're not happy. Sometimes these children, not good health because they actually don't want to be here. This is a part of the suffering of rebirth, but it's a little late at that point. <laughs> and a major cause of suffering, suffering from being separated from reality, the fact that the way you are existing in this world is a fantasy. It's not actually how you are alive but you have become hypnotized, you have fallen asleep, and in your dream, in your dream, you are suffering. And this separation from reality, from the way you actually should be knowing that you exist, is a suffering of being separated from reality. All right? that in your most uh, deep meditation, before awakening, this is why they call it asleep, that you're asleep. Hey, wake up. Like that. That this stupor is producing a very bad sickness which is called suffering. And to sing and dance or to rip your clothes off and do cartwheels up and down the aisle and saying, that's not so, I am not suffering, I am not suffering. Or to do one of the, like these affirmations I am not suffering, I am happy, 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 I'm an enlightened being. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. That there are certain kinds of, and this is going to Tantra, of course, certain kinds of energetic transformations which have to happen. Okay, first noble truth. Now, I'm sure that uh, when the Buddha taught this, taught this to these disciples, that they were uh, stunned, as some of you here are tonight, even though we're laughing a little bit, that there is a very serious component in sharing this information regarding uh, suffering. The second noble truth is that suffering comes from causes. Suffering's origin, and this is a scripture here, this is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is the craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, 
seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for extermination. This is scripture. That the causes, that the causes uh, of the, su that, that suffering comes from causes. That we make a distinction uh, between causes and conditions, and this is again open to interpretation, but if we can get you to a certain place here, it doesn't matter <laughs> which, which way I explain it, that uh, causes are something which has which is coming from your own uh, nature, your own unhappy nature, I'm going to say, that born with this unhappy nature, an unfulfilled uh, existence, causes you literally uh, to arrive here in the human realm because this is the only place that you fit. You understand? That you, in this human realm, you round pegs in a round hole. That's it. However, there is a spectrum. There is a spectrum of experiences which allow you to be a unique individual with unique experiences, unique tendencies, talents, problems that seem to arise from within you. Things that you were never taught, both good and bad. And these are the causes due to, uh, I'm going to say, almost mathematical-like precision of the accomplishment of karmic, uh, uh, karmic uh, engineering uh, from a previous life, or if we talk about you today, perhaps an hour ago, that the causes, uh, for example, uh, anger arising from inside caused you to take a vase and a smash it half hour b before you came uh, to this teaching that that action that you performed, which was worth like half a million dollars, that face, <laughs> I'm going to say, and created, will create a problem in the future. That's the money you were going to use to go to the Bahamas. And now you can't go to the Bahamas because you broke the vase in any way. This is just a small, this is just a, an amusing example. However, causes coming from 
for example, your nature of uh, anger, that you have a strong uh, delusional anger. It come out all the time. However, I, I would say, let's say often. It comes out often. It not, and nothing is all the time. However, if those causes never meet conditions, then the uh, problem will never come to fruition. You understand? And so, uh, when you just kind of go with the flow of your life, like the, like the hippies did, that uh, causes and conditions came together very easily because you didn't resist. You just go anywhere and you do anything and, and you just wanted to experience whatever it was that life brought you like that. You didn't make any effort. Not too many old hippies here. You not make, they not make effort. They not try. And so causes and conditions were always coming together and creating, uh, creating events that didn't have to come together. So, for example, someone who is uh, someone who have a tendency toward alcoholism, if they don't go into a bar and they don't pick up a drink, uh, they quite okay. The causes still remain as causes, but they avoid the conditions. And like that, like that, uh, in Buddhist practice, that the addiction of the elixir of the senses, as the Buddha, Lord Buddha, is saying here, that if we avoid those, uh, cr the craving, for example, the craving of alcohol, like the craving of alcohol, the craving of the senses, we try to resist the grasping in order to train and to calm these uh, these uh, to calm the suffering. Hmm? Yes. So it sounds like you're saying it can go both directions, meaning uh, causes can arise, then you don't meet the conditions like alcoholism, and that's good because you don't want those conditions. That's right. Together because they have an outcome that's not desirable. But you also have causes that want to meet conditions that are of a higher quality as well. Is well, now, see, we're talk, now we're talking about suffering. So we have to only, we have to only look at it. We're, we're, we're not looking at, that's, I believe, will come to point number four. <laughs> so right now we're peering through this window, and we are coming to a strong determination that the problem with suffering isn't because everybody hates me, or I did it, uh, or this uh, or my body is uh, this a problem, or this uh, everybody is uh, everybody's so bad to me, or all of these sufferings which I'm experiencing, which appear to come from out there somewhere, actually uh, come from uh, causes and conditions causes from here, from my nature, meeting with conditions that make the event <laughs> ripen, that make the event ripen, which 
then is perceived as suffering and pain. Isn't that so? And so we begin to become more analytical regarding this issue instead of emotional and feeling that we are being a, what they put upon left and right and that we arrive in a we arrive in a place in our in our own decision where we are watching all of the time watching these causes and conditions and we are actively aware at this point that this suffering is not something that other people are trying to, to do to me, but in fact, uh, that the suffering arises uh, due to, uh, due to uh, the craving, that it comes from, at its base, base level, that it comes from an addictive personality. Now, you know, we have entire industries that work with people with addiction. I mean, it's a big business, isn't it? That uh, we have hospitalizations programs uh, in order to help people overcome their addiction. However, all of these will arise again, brought into the, uh, brought into the correct conditions and so we have to shut down the factory of craving which is beneath the addiction. You can solve it by behavioral adjustments. However, what we want to do is definitively end the craving which is calling forth the suffering and the continuity of the problem. Uh. And in addition, this suffering that comes from causes, this, this suffering that comes from causes are uh, internal, internal influences. Uh, for example, for example, in your mental functions, things which never existed in other societies, uh, for example, extreme competitiveness. Some societies who are quite uh, get along with each other uh, because they don't have these feelings of competitive. As we were coming down here today, we're talking of and passing some of what they call these uh, mega houses or what they call those? McDonald's houses, huh? McMansions. McMansions, there we go. McMansions and uh, <laughs> huge homes. Uh, I read just today that uh, 20 years ago that the average size of a home was 1,000 square feet. Now at the average home is 2,000 square feet. And the size of the families is smaller. And so the only, the only thing that you can think of is that there must be some kind of competitive uh, uh, internal, internal influences which have affected your minds so badly that you need Two people need a 3,500-square-foot house, otherwise they feel like they're in the way of each other. <laughs> and uh, in that way, there doesn't seem to be anything 
that uh, that will satisfy that craving of being bigger, having a bigger house, a better house, maybe more bushes out in front, whatever it is, these mental, internal, internal influences drive you to crave more even compared to your society 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so the faster they go, the faster you have to run because you have to keep up with the modern world. Huh? And, uh, and uh, so the sorrowless, if, if we told you, if we told you that, that there is a, uh, that, uh, 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 for example, someone who goes to a country where many people are experiencing a starvation and uh, dressed uh, maybe a lady wearing a fur coat and, her, and uh, her nails done and her hair done perfectly like that, that uh, would go up to someone who is sitting by the side of the road starving to death and said, my good man, if you would just eat four food groups a day, if you would eat more meat, if you would eat more organic, if you would have beets, I think if you eat beets, <laughs> and if you would take vitamins every day, that you would be okay. This is like, uh, this would be like telling people you know that, every, that everything is suffering and all of these things are coming from your own mind. You're suffering. This suffering comes from causes. If it was only that much, that would be like telling this starving person that they should just eat more and they would be okay. However, there is no food. There is no food for that starving person. And so we don't do it like that. And uh, however... The Buddha said, there is, a, there is a sorrowless state where cessation from suffering exists and eternal bliss, a state of eternal bliss, which is the absolute cessation of suffering. And so the uh, invitation, the invitation of the uh, Buddha to those who are now in a state where they understand the existential dilemma that they are living within and the unawakened state saying that there is a state free from the suffering which you are experiencing. And so I'm going to read this uh, in scripture again. Suffering cessation. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishing of it freedom from it, and non-reliance on it. This is the scripture. The way leading to the cessation, oh, excuse me. This 
cessation, this cessation, is the description, is the description of the release, uh, the release uh, from that suffering state. And uh, the Buddha uh, and the teachings which have remained for 2,500 years, nothing has changed regarding the sorrowless state that nirvana or enlightenment, I'm going to say, still exists. That is not too late. It's not too late uh, to enter into uh, this state. Even though you have dawdled in these unhappy states, we say from beginningless time, it is still there and it is possible and over 2,500 years, myriad living beings have actually uh, found this sorrowless state. Yes. And the fourth a noble truth is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. The scripture, this is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is the noble eightfold path. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is described, uh, which is described in the, uh, uh, as part of the Four Noble Truths, is the, uh, the Great Path, the Dharma. This is the vast, uh, mass of methods and skillful means. You know what? I have an idea like, uh, you know what a nanobots are? Huh? This is a tiny, tiny, tiny machines that the cleansing, that the cleansing and the powerful effect of the uh, path that leads from the suffering state to the sorrowless state, that the myriad methods of purification, like a nanobots just going in your blood and cleaning it all out and all of the confusion, like that. Huh? And uh, the behavioral, beginning with the behavioral adjustments, and uh, uh, moving through various levels of understanding and uh, uh, beginning an authentic meditation practice which allows the uh, ability, your ability to concentrate 
can be trained through that process uh, to wake up and realize that uh, you have been asleep, to realize that you have been asleep. It is not enough to tell you that you're sleeping. It is not enough to tell you that there is an awakened state. You actually have to enter into the program to help you wake up by stages. This waking up by stages could include the very strong possibility that in previous lives that you have already walked on the path, that it is very likely that you have promised to move quickly on the path in order to become uh, fully awakened so that you can be of benefit to others, highly likely. It is very possible that the reason why you are sitting here tonight is because you have made a promise to yourself that is awakening in you. It is very likely that you will, uh, you will remember or that you are remembering something that you were uh, never taught. That this remembering coming from previous experiences of meditation, I find quite often in my Western students, and the fact that you were born in the West, I think almost everyone here, gives an indication that the causes and conditions of your karma to be born in a land which is quite free from uh, trauma that plagues hunger and uh, manifest suffering, that you have very little manifest suffering here in the West. And therefore, your births in the West, not everyone in the West is like this, but I'm going to say that probably everyone here, that your birth in the West is an indication of the positive uh, karma that you have to not live in a manifest suffering a mode. However, now we have to wake you from your complacency by telling you that even though you have a very good life, that you are still suffering and that there's more. And should you use all of your positive karma for a comfortable life, there is no guarantee, I promise you, there is no guarantee that you will be born in Wauwatosa again. <laughs> no matter how nice it is, and that, you're, uh, that it is up to you now when you have the intelligence and the leisure to enter into the path 
and make this a definitive break and definitively wake up in this lifetime. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on whatever platform you're listening. You can stay up to date on White Conch news and events at white-conch.org updates. You can find all our social media links and blog posts as well as these podcast episodes at white-conch.org podcasts. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out the next episode as we continue our exploration of compassion.